Dear Heavenly Father, we opened the Word before us because we know, Father, You are among us and through Your Spirit You are ready to teach us. So we pray, Father, that Your teaching would uh, be what is heard in this room, that Your words would be spoken and that You would speak through me to accomplish Your purpose. Father, we pray that uh, whatever may be spoken here would be glorifying and pleasing to You, though it uh, is limited to the knowledge and the abilities I have, Father, it is unlimited in its ability to do work in the hearts of those who would hear it. I trust in that, and we pray, Father, you would do a great work as we go into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Colossians chapter 1. We left off about verse 9, verse 10. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time setting us back up into the moment. I think the verses themselves do that, and we'll pick up right where we left off last week. So, chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that, you may, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power and according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who is qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, I don't know about you, but in typical Pauline style, the sentences seem to run together, the phrasing seems to attach to one another, and so next thing you know, your eyes are glazing over, because though you hear the words and pieces of it jump out, it's almost too much. You, you want to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul, go back to the second point again. I lost you somewhere in the middle of all that. And that's, that's a classic... Pauline's style of writing, because he does want you to see the, the complexity of our relationship in Christ. Not that it's a complex thing to enter, but it's a complex thing in and of itself. Christ and his work is a complex thing. So I'm going to take it with you as you would expect to go through it, piece by piece, breaking it down, but showing how the pieces relate, because there's a picture being drawn here or a statement being made. We said last week, as Paul sets up the connection here in the minds of the reader, he's trying to move toward basically three points. He has to establish trust with his church because they don't know him. He's never visited. He didn't found this church. They don't know him personally. So like any of us, he has to establish some credibility with that church. Number two, he wants them to understand that some of what they've been taught is wrong. That's the message that came to Paul in prison in Rome when he heard about this church from a man who founded it, Epaphras. And what he heard was, a lot of things were being taught in that church which were flat out wrong and taken as a whole, they, they become a new gospel, a false gospel, which is ultimately detrimental to every church. So he has that concern. Thirdly, he wants to replace that false teaching with the truth. So what he wants to do is combat the false teachers by coming back at them again, coming back at this congregation again with the fundamentals of the faith. As you look in these verses, he does something very interesting. It's something he does quite commonly in his letters. He moves from cause to effect in a line-by-line explanation. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Look, for example, at the first cause. He gives back in verse 9. Cause 1 is what? A cause, something that happens, leads to an effect. What is the cause? Okay, go a little further into verse 9. He says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of His will. Okay, so there's a filling of us with a knowledge of God's will and of all, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's essentially the gaining of knowledge of your faith as it is provided through Scripture. As God reveals it to you, maybe is a better way to put it. As the Holy Spirit reveals to you the truths of our faith, the wisdom of God, 
We are filled with that wisdom. That is his prayer for the church. Now, what's the effect of that thing happening to a Christian? Look at the effect in verse 10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy to the Lord. Now, knowing the two pieces is important, but understanding their connection is all important. Do you want to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord? Is that our desire? I mean, I hope it is. A a Christian should feel that burden, should have that desire. If that is in fact your desire, the means to that end is provided in verse 9. Now, I don't want to say that verse 9 is the only thing you should do, but it is sufficient to achieve verse 10. In other words, knowing God's will for your life, by hearing it as he, express, as he reveals it to you, principally by being filled by the, with spiritual knowledge, spiritual wisdom, enables you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let me give you a simple principle from your own life. How is it your child could walk, meaning live, behave, to put it simply, how could they hope to walk in a way worthy of their parents' desires? Only by knowing what the parents' expectations are. Now, there's another component in there, right? There's obedience. Clearly, there's an obedient component because I can know it and not do it. But can I do it if I don't know it? Fundamentally, I can't. I'm, I'm stopped before I start. So, fundamentally, first step to, under, to knowing how to be walking in a way worthy to our Lord's desires is to know His desires, to know His will, to understand His expectations. That comes out of the Word of God. So, as a prerequisite, I've got to know His will. We said last week that the relationship between what you believe to be true and how you live, that's a biblical principle. How you live will be determined largely by what you believe to be true. I've used a simple kind of stupid example in the past to prove this point. But if someone were to come to you and say, I believe that gravity does not apply to me. I can, I can break the bonds of gravity. I do not have to obey the law of gravity. If somebody made an absurd statement like that to you, you could begin to debate with them over the nonsensicalness of it. But how would you really know if they believed it or not? How would you know if they're just pulling your leg or if they really believe it? I might walk them off to the, to the top of a, of a tall building and say, jump. I mean, after all, if you believe what you're saying, you don't have to worry. You can jump. But if they say, well, I don't need to jump. I don't feel like jumping today. I don't want to jump. You can sit there and go, okay, you say this, but you're not willing to act in a way that's according to what you say. I can see a disconnect. That tells me you are not believing what you say you believe. Conversely, if they start jumping off tall buildings, well, I know what they believe, crazy as they are, right? So your behavior will give insight, give a window into what you really believe to be true. And the scriptural principle of that is everywhere. Uh, John says it in his first letter. First John chapter 2, he says this in verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. Now, there's an ought there because the point is that you can't do it perfectly, and John knows that. He's not saying perfection is the standard. What he's saying, though, is there ought to be a desire. There ought to be a a movement toward Christ-like living in the life of somebody who is a believer. And should there be no fruit in that respect? We have reason to question, like the guy that wouldn't jump off the building, we have reason to question what they truly believe because their life just doesn't reflect what they say they believe. Paul's statement here is the enabler to that walk is a knowledge that God has filled you with. Not your ability to obtain it for yourself, but God's gracious filling of you with his knowledge by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, look at the next cause and effect. Effect effect number one was what? 
the, the second half of the first relationship. The effect, number one, was... All right, we're walking in a manner worthy. That becomes cause, number two, to the next effect. So when you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, what happens next? What's the, what's the effect of that? To please Him in all respects. So the next effect of walking in a manner worthy of Him, and this is hardly brain surgery here, right? Rocket science. If I walk the way He expects me to walk, I please Him. That doesn't surprise anyone, I hope, right? Paul says this in chapter 2, or the second book, rather, of, of his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Therefore, though we are always confident and know that we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yet, we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. So Paul, and again, typical for Paul's style, he doesn't pull any punches. In his second letter to the Corinthians here, second letter, he says, look, whether we're at home or whether we're waiting for that moment still in this body, our, our aim is the same in both cases, to please the Lord. We'll be making that our goal when we are where we are going to be. We make it our goal even now. And he says, remember, there will be a day when we're going to be judged by him for what we did with respect to how you served me and what rewards now come to you for your faithful obedience and in service. But our aim is the same. Please him now, please him then. You can't say to yourself, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be pleasing to my Lord. It started when you became a believer. It's, it's, you're already in that mode. So Paul is saying to this church in Colossae, those who would walk in a manner worthy to him are the ones who will please him. If you love me, what does Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. Obey my word. That's the only thing he needs. He doesn't need you to do anything more than that. He didn't say plant a church, you know, establish a ministry. Do, I mean, all of those things may come as part of how you, you serve him, granted. But my point is, it's not what you achieve. It's only what you do in your own walk that is ultimately how he judges whether or not you've pleased him or not. You know, it's real simple. You don't have to worry about fixing other people. We can just work on ourselves. And that's enough for him, because that's all he's called us to do. He, he then adds another phrase in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So in that sense, he kind of, with that phrase, he kind of completes a circle of thought there. He says, be filled with wisdom, spiritual wisdom, knowing God's will. That causes us to walk in a, in a worthy manner, or maybe I should say enables us to walk in a worthy manner, which then would cause us to please the Lord, which then, of course, bears fruit of good works. In pleasing God, by virtue of obedience and a walk in His will, we will, we will bear fruit. You will bear good fruit. It's not like something you have to plan. You don't have to set apart some plan that's going to result in fruit. If you walk obediently, according to God's will, you can't help but bear fruit. Not just in your own life, of course, but beyond that. How you influence others, how you witness to others in your own life. You will bear fruit. I, I think sometimes we make this more complicated than it needs to be. If you really want to have an impact for the gospel and for the, and for the mission of God's uh, kingdom on earth, be holy as he is holy. And watch the effect of that all by itself. Paul finishes that prayer, by the way, in verses 11 and 12, asking that they would be strengthened in these efforts by God's power, and then they would obtain steadfastness and patience, all the while giving the Father thanks. Paul now is, I'm going to move past this, because Paul now has set this, Simple analogy or, or simple logical connection, rather. He set this up in the mind of the reader because he wants to show them where they're falling short 
and how they can get back on track. So he moves from that into a jumping off point, which many regard to be his most powerful display or his most powerful presentation of Christology. Christology is the doctrine of Christ. In theological terms, it is what we know to be true about the man, Jesus Christ. So our theology of Christ becomes his focal point for the rest of this chapter, which tells you one thing even before we study it. What is the key and central issue for every church if it is to be sound and healthy? They have to understand what? They have to understand who the man Jesus is, what you believe about him to be true, where he fits in your theology is all important. And, of course, there's only one place he should fit. But the point is, a church has been misled by false teaching. Next thing you know, Jesus is next to Mary. Or Jesus is one of many gods, or, which is the Mormon view. Or Jesus is important, but you also need works. You know, as soon as I move Jesus off the preeminent place that he has in our theology, everything else starts to go bad real fast. So he's going to recenter them to who and why Jesus is important, who he is, and what he did for the church, why he is central to the church. So now we go into this defense of Christology. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. We said already why he's doing this, why he wants to magnify Christ, right? It's really a two-part message. I want to explain to you who Jesus is, and then I want to explain to you his work who he is and what he did. I need you to understand who he is in, in, in scriptural terms and what he did in scriptural terms. So first he begins with who is Jesus and he looks at him from three ways. His relationship is described in three ways. Okay, number one, so in relationship to the creation. So I want you to understand who he is in relationship to the creation. That's one. To the church. All right, and what's the third one? God, deity. Absolutely. So, who is this man in relationship to our concept of deity? Who is he in relationship to our concept of the world around us, the physical world? And who is he in relationship to us, the church? Getting those three things right is all important to being a healthy church. All right? So, that, that's where he starts. So, let's understand him in this order. Let's go to deity first, because that's the order in which it's presented. What is his relationship to deity? Jesus is God. Because there's two other persons of the Trinity described in Scripture which act independent of one another and yet are the same God. It's the mystery of the Trinity. If you're going to sit here and try to understand how that works, let me know how it comes out. I, all right? It's called a mystery for that reason. But the statements, although they sound contradictory on their face, we know them to be presented in Scripture as not a contradictory series of statements. But in some manner, in some mystery, you can logically say Jesus was all of God and yet God is... is more person than just the Son. All right? That's what Paul is trying to communicate here. He says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What we're saying is that Jesus provided the physical connection to God for us. That the Spirit and the Father are both Spirit and as such cannot be seen except that they would manifest themselves to us in some way through the creation. 
So when God showed Moses who he was, look at the ways he did that. Think about it as an example of just one, one way he did it. He used a, what? A bush that was on fire. Both of those are physical elements of the creation, right? Fire is a physical element of the creation. It's a chemical reaction in the air. And the bush itself, of course, is agricultural. You know, it's, it's a plant. What about other ways he did it? You know, he would, uh, thunder, sound, you know, sound waves coming through the atmosphere. He would use uh, pillars of fire and, or cloud, and he would use uh, uh, fire. He would use um, lightnings, you know, lights in the sky, bright lights. I mean, these are all physical manifestations. None of them are God. They are simply ways that God used to uh, make himself visible. But we're told here that Jesus, when we get to the creation part here in a minute, the entire creation was his product. So he himself in man, in the form of a flesh made man, was himself visible. So that's God himself becoming visible through a man, through, through Jesus. But even the rest of the creation around us is the product of that same part of the Trinity. He is the image of the invisible God because he is the one part of the Trinity that has been made visible to us. And it is through his actions that the rest of the creation as well is made visible. How do you see Jesus today, visibly? Through the church. Absolutely, through the church. All right. His relationship to the creation I've already touched on. So what about the last one, his relationship to the church? What's his relationship to the church? Yes. Head of the church. This headship can have no true meaning if it doesn't mean that Jesus is today actively making decisions and directing the work of the church through men. You ever had a CEO that's sort of a figurehead CEO? I mean, he's on the, he's on the org chart as being at the top, but in terms of day-to-day how the behavior of the company is orchestrated, nobody really looks at that guy for day-to-day decisions, right? There's plenty of companies that run with that kind of leadership. And then we all know the term for a, a, a CEO that takes a different approach, the hands-on CEO. This is the guy that wants to be involved in every decision and be in every meeting. Right? There's both kinds. This te- as the text brings this out, the head of the church here is not figurehead. It's the active orchestrator of the church. So, though you and I don't see him physically present in the room, he is God. He doesn't have to be here physically to get his will. What you need to understand is what, what is going on in the church corporately is exactly what Jesus wants it to be. Not necessarily what is good In other words, it's not to say that because the church has sin in it that Jesus, in some sense, approves of the sin. It is merely to acknowledge that all he has is sinful people. That's all he has. You know, he doesn't have a perfect person through through whom to work. So given that he is working through imperfect men, he uses what we do to accomplish his purpose, whether because we obey or not, such that even when we're not obeying, he still gets what he needs out of us. He works through our sin, in other words. He doesn't endorse it. He doesn't create it. But knowing it's there and knowing it will be there, he fits it into a plan so that in the end we can't thwart his purpose, even with our sin, All right, so that he will achieve his good purpose anyway. So my point is, though you may not see it happening, you have to understand that Jesus is every, much, every bit as much in control of what goes on in his church today as he was when he walked with the twelve apostles. So to a church that may be experiencing false teaching, to, to a church that may have placed Jesus sort of on the sideline a little bit, he's reorienting them to remind them of just how powerful this church is or this, this man is in, in the form, or God is in the form of man, and how much in control he is of his church. And the fact that we will all have to give account one day before him. All right. The preeminence of Christ, therefore, is Paul's point here. The preeminence of Christ. 
There is nothing else of value or of meaning in our religious experience as Christians except Christ and Him crucified. There is nothing else of lasting meaning. Everything stems from that. Everything is born from that. Any value you have in calling yourself a Christian must start and end with a knowledge of who Christ is and what He did. So that's the basic problem of the Colossian church. They've taken their eye off the ball. They've forgotten who Christ is. What's really fascinating to me is, remember when we talked physically about the, the location of, Colos, of Colossae? What was their sister church, if you will, the closest church nearby? Ephesus. Ephesus. Remember we said they got their letter at the same time that Ephesus got their letter because they were sent with the same party walking back from Rome? Look what he says to a letter to that church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Look what Paul, uh, or Jesus rather, says to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2 of Revelation. He says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove the lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So a few decades after the letter to the Colossians was written, Jesus revealed to John that he was unhappy with the church in Ephesus for basically the same reason that Paul is now writing to the church at Colossae. Here are these two sister churches, and it stands to reason that the teaching that one was experiencing may have flown, you know, kind of drifted over and become a part of the other church as well. And what was its effect? You've left your first love, which is a colloquial way of saying you've taken the principal purpose, the, the principal uh, uh, central preeminent piece of the church, which is the Christ himself, and you put it aside. You've taken Jesus and moved him a little off center. And now, as a result, he says, you stand to lose your lampstand, which is another euphemism. It means your position as a church in this world. Here's a good example of how Christ runs his church. You know, you, you think about churches being planted and then other churches dying off. And, and there's complex reasons in every case for why a church succeeds or why it doesn't, and I don't pretend to know them all. But it's clear enough that when a church arrives, God has planted it. And when a church leaves the lampstand's been removed. So it's a matter of whether the church has stayed focused or not as to whether or not he finds value in that church or not. All right? Now, in verse 20, Paul begins to make a transition. And this is where the letter starts to move away from some of the theological, higher-level discussion, and he's going to begin to narrow down to the individual in this church. Chapter 2 is all about the individual. It's all about meddling, if I if you remember I mentioned it earlier. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his, Christ, of his cross, through, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So he's, he's kind of taking a little bit of a turn here. Things aren't quite so cordial now, all of a sudden. He starts by saying Jesus reconciled all things to himself by his blood. So the work of Christ on the cross was the saving work of creation. Now why is he making this point again? We've talked about the person of Christ. Now he's moving into the work of Christ. Why is it that he's having to make this point. You almost feel like uh, you know, it's one of those lessons you say, I've heard this a million times. I know what it means to be a Christian. I've, I've got faith. Okay, can we move beyond this? But yet he's seeming to go through this again for their sake. What would that tell you he's worried about? 
What does it look like to do things when you don't appreciate the truth of, of the gospel, of Christ's preeminence and of his finished work on the cross? As soon as I move away from the center position of saying Christ is the thing that matters and his work on the cross is sufficient, I'm saved. There's an instinctive sense of I still have something I need to do. There's still more required in my relationship to God in order to be happy, secure, safe with him. Now, I'm not talking about obedience having come to faith. I'm talking about someone whose theology has started to slip so far that they have nights where they wonder if I'm going to heaven because I haven't done something, because I forgot to do something. Or I think I'm okay, but what can I do tomorrow just to be extra sure? And then you, you couple that thinking with a teaching that comes along afterward that says, you know, if you would just do this or learn this, you'd, you'd be in better shape. Well, that's like a puzzle fitting puzzle piece fitting into the puzzle for the person who's never understood the gospel. That's what you've been waiting for. Oh, that'll solve my sleepless nights. You've just given me the solution to my problem. My problem was I didn't know if I was secure and there's more I need to do. And you've just told me, oh, yeah, there is. Here's the thing. Oh, well, give it to me then. That's the problem with how... That's how the false teachers got their foothold in this church. It could only come... I mean, think about it from your own perspective right here. Uh, say for a moment I'm a false teacher and I'm going to come in here and teach you that there's more you, you need to do to be secure in your relationship with God. And if you don't do it, you're in jeopardy. How would you... How could I gain an audience in this room? How could it possibly be the case that any of you would listen to that for even a moment? Only... Only if you're not confident about what the Scriptures say about your relationship. If you are in this room confident, you'd know in a heartbeat to say, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're not, you're, it's not working. It's not getting through. I understand the truth and you apparently don't. You know, they get nowhere with you. In fact, they're put out of the church if, if you know the Scripture. But if they get a foothold, it's a clear sign. And this is what Paul is saying as you look at those verses I read in verse 23. This is what Paul is referring to the fact that it could gain a foothold in a person's life becomes evidence to indict their confession. Now, there's a fine line here because at, the some, at some times along our way, particularly when we're new in the faith, it's very, it's very easy for someone to get our thoughts mixed up, right? To get us off track, to get us thinking about things in the wrong way and consequently we might be open to some false teaching without realizing it. I understand that. And your mind mixed up to the point where you believe in Christ, but you've been taught you've got to do five other things along the way and you're trying to be obedient to the church and you're not sure on where to draw the line. So Paul is saying, the fact that you might... Look how he words it here. He says, you will be holy and blameless and beyond reproach, in verse 22, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. It's similar to what he says in another place in Scripture. If you want, or, uh, I don't know if it's him that says it, but if you want to turn to chapter 3 of Hebrews, this is what the writer of the Hebrews says in 3.12. He says... Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So he's warning a church, hey, you might want to make sure that there's no one in your church that's an unbeliever. Okay, Make sure there's none among you who are an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers in Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. He's not saying this is what you have to do to be a Christian. He's saying this is the definition of a Christian. The Christian is the one who holds firm his assurance to the end. You'll know you're a Christian because false teachers never get a crack at you because you're sure, because you know what the truth is, because you've understood that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. 
that knowledge, that, that, that is the gospel that has taken root in your heart. By the Holy Spirit in you, you have been sealed for the day of redemption. There is no chance that a false teacher can pry you out of his hands. So you are there for your life. But if somebody were to make a confession, and then six months later the false teacher shows up and says, you know, you haven't done enough to save yourself, and that person goes, ooh, maybe I haven't, and they run after that, the writer of the Hebrews, Paul in Colossians here again, is saying essentially this, you're showing the true falseness of your confession by your willingness to go after something like that. Look how Paul puts it again in Colossians, verse 23. He says, you are holy and blameless if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established, steadfast, firmly established, not false, but firm, true, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. See, to believe something else is to move away from the hope of the gospel and trust in something else. So what he's pointing out to this group is, yeah, Christ has done all these wonderful things to reconcile the body, and you participate in it, you benefit rather from it, only as long and as, such, as much as you trust in that message. And if you're willing to depart, to depart from it so that you can chase after these false messages, you're showing yourself to never having believed the truth to begin with because it is mutually exclusive. We come back next week. We'll come back into this and then rapidly into chapter 2. And we'll see how Paul begins to turn it into an even more specific discussion about the individual and their response to these messages. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask for clear understanding of your gospel. We ask, Father, for the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. And in that, Father, we trust, knowing that it will do the work sufficient, Father, to bring us before you holy and blameless. And because of that, Father, we rejoice and we live a life now pleasing to you as best we can, Father knowing that the work on the cross, having been done, has put an end to the question of who we are and where we will be. All that remains, Father, is what we may do as your ambassador here on this earth. And we pray, Father, you give us the courage to be a good ambassador and the knowledge, Father, that what we do in our own lives as we mold ourselves to the image of Christ is a sufficient work, for it will please you. Thank you for the time and your word. I pray, Father, if it be your will, we return next week. In Jesus' name, amen.